We're very thankful for a partnership with Haven Care. It's been a long time, and it does fit into our vision moving forward. And it's an interesting Sunday. They um, like to figure out how to do both, but tomorrow is MLK's birthday, and then uh, which we would like to be mindful of. So next week we'll be looking uh, at um, which there's a lot of racism we see in Jonah, and we'll be looking at that next week. And this week is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so um, we felt like we wanted to focus there this week and just uh, cover them both this week. So um, we're looking at Jonah. We've been in that since the first of the year, and there's multiple themes in Jonah, but Jonah was called to reach a city, and we believe we are too. Uh, Really, all God's people are called to reach reach their community. And so we have a vision for the next five years of grace for the city, and... um, and so as we look at Jonah being called to that, well, there's multiple themes, all kinds of themes. So far, we've looked at the first week, just the doctrine of sin, where Jonah realized that he, um, uh, what we really learn is that uh, in Jonah's anger towards the Ninevites, that uh, he thought he was better than them, and that, that he's not, that there are, uh, he was just in need of God's grace, he's a sinner. There's not good people and bad people, there's just people who needs God's grace. And then secondly, last week, we just kind of looked at the compassion of the Lord, it just held that up before us, how compassionate God is in this story of Jonah. Uh, un- unbelievable literary, literary work, and, um, and that God, uh, that Jonah, we'll see today, we'll be looking at chapter 2, does respond well, uh, a little bit, as far as better this first time, and he gets recommissioned to go back out to preach to Nineveh, and he doesn't respond well the second time, but he's a man in process. We looked at the compassion of God going towards the pagan world and towards um, uh, one of his prophets who was a knucklehead and a bigot in many ways and yet in process. And so we held up the compassion of God. So this week we'll, we'll look at the compassion of God really seen in storms. And we'll look at the idea that it's how these storms, uh, this particular storm comes to uh, Jonah. And um, I want to be very careful this morning uh, about storms, because the storms really are symbolic of uh, of suffering, and I want you to know that this this morning is not a, a sermon on suffering. Um, the, the text doesn't lend itself to some of the maybe compassion or the thoughts that you might see in lament in the Psalms in that way. But nevertheless, what I what I will be doing is just kind of framing the doctrine of suffering and what it's like, what kind of storms come to us, and how we respond. But please don't hear. Um, I hope in a compassionate way I can say that, but I, I'm also trying to more form uh, our, our theological framework to understand storms. And I realize that all of us, including me and you guys, have all kinds of storms that we are living through and a part of. So uh, maybe in a different place, but this morning we'll look at kind of three ways uh, storms. Uh, we'll look at an outline, but before that, may I give us a quote here, one recently from um, Dane Ortland, and maybe this can help you as I theologically try to frame a theology of storms that come into our lives and how we respond to those. May this be the heart. You'll see the quote here talking about God. His heart for his own is not like an arrow shot quickly but soon falling to the ground or a runner quick out of the gate soon slowing and faltering. His heart is an avalanche gathering momentum with time, a wildfire growing with intensity as it spreads. That's a beautiful, beautiful, at the end of the book, Gentle and Lowly, of a picture. Uh, some of the men that's in a study this week, we talked about that in some sense would, was Jesus really just kind of made it to the cross to save us in his love. But actually, the picture ought to be that his love was growing for us. 
And so to Matt, to, to, what I want to say to you this morning, that no matter what storm you're in or mindful of, as we theologically frame storms, no matter how it lands on you, I want you to know that God's love is an avalanche increasing as he comes after you. Until the end. And, uh, and that his love really is behind all the waves that you and I are encountering. So I can't unpack all of that, but I want to at least say that to you as we look. So three things we'll look at quickly here. The types of storms. There's types of storms. What types of storms uh, are there? How do we, um, uh, ways to respond uh, when we're scared. Uh, the ways we respond, how do I say it? Ways we respond when we're scared. So we're scared in the storms. And then lastly, the hope of sinking. So, uh, storms, scared, sinking. Three S's. Maybe that'll help. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this theological um, framework of just storms in our life, uh, as we frame it here, Lord, would you, would you let the, the truth of, uh, around storms comfort us? And would you help us to, um, our minds to understand better, our hearts to believe it? And would you grant us uh, the hands and feet to live out under these realities? I'm thankful for the book of Jonah and the story, this real story, not a metaphor, not an allegory, but I'm thankful for the real person of Jonah. And um, Lord, help us to see um, your storms correctly. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so let me just, as we look at the storms here, we'll be looking at verse 1 and chapter 2. We keep reading chapter 1 over and over. That's by design, but we'll be going into chapter 2. We didn't read that this morning. I'll pull a couple of those up. But here's the first thing. There's types of storms, and... um, um, and this particular storm, in a sense, I mean, God is doing it. You'll see in uh, verse 4 that the Lord hur- hurled a great wind upon the sea. Uh, that word hurled there is actually, um, in the Greek, the kind of casting of a spear. So God is intentionally bringing this storm uh, to Jonah, where he is. But let me just talk about storms and, um, and say this, that all sin produces storms. Let me say that again. All sin produces storms. So by nature, that's what, what sin does. It produces storms. All sin comes with a storm, if you will. There's no non-consequences of sin that doesn't bring some kind of hurt, pain, struggle, dysfunction. Sin, all sin brings some type of storm to you and to the world, okay? That's the truth. But, but there's kind of two types of storms. And the first kind of storm um, is the storms of our own making, uh, which is Jonah's storm here. Uh, a storm of our own making. It's a direct result. We see a parallel to my, his sin, and God, he's running from God, says, I want you to go to a city, and he runs after him, and God, uh, he runs away, and, and, and God goes after him. So, um, as a matter of fact, in verse 12 uh, of the chapter, uh, Jonah even admits that. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So, Sometimes the storm that you and I are experiencing in our lives is a result of the sins that we have committed directly. So if you um, can, can see any type of, whether major sins in people's lives and find themselves, you can, you can find yourself in a storm with brokenness, hurt, entanglement, 
all kinds of places in the well of a belly of a well because of your own sin. It can create that kind of storm for you. All right? Um, but there's one type of storm, uh, big and small, but there's also another type of storm, and there are storms that are um, not a direct result of your sin, but are just a result of the misery and fall of sin that is in the world, that are not your fault. There are storms and difficulties that come our way that are not a result of that. And where do you see that in the passage? Well, the sailors. Look at that. A huge storm (laughs) comes to them, and it was not their fault. It was actually somebody else's sin that had produced that. And and those are um, basically the two types of sin. So, You remember the blind man that was born blind, the disciples in Matthew 9, I think it is, or Mark 9, where they asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his parents' sins or his sins? And um, Jesus said, neither. He was born blind for for that I might display my glory. Uh, It wasn't a direct connection, but the fall, and we'll learn this is how God's ruling over it, but but sin and, and storms that you and I have can be a result of our sins, and sometimes they're not. Right? And, um, but when storms come, here's where our hope is found. Um, if you'll see in verse 4, that even though, um, as I previously said, the Lord hurled it on him, whether our own making or, in verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, um, and the Lord was working here, our only hope in our storms is that God is sovereign and he's ruling over them. Now, you can wrestle with that one. That's a difficult doctrine to think about, that he's ruling over the bad things that are going on in my life. And most people in evangelical worlds and Christian worlds say that God is great, big and mighty and, and can do anything. There's nothing that God can't do. And then they struggle when they think to the idea that maybe he might be ruling over the, the difficult things in my life as well, actually orchestrating them which is what he was doing here for his purpose. But nevertheless, either you might say he's allowing it to happen or he's bringing it to bear, whatever language you want to. In the end, our hope is the fact that God is king and he's ruling over them. Otherwise, we have no hope. There are entities in this world that are outside the rule of our king and we have reason to be scared. But what this passage is showing us is that the types of storms, whether of our own making or not. Now, just because he's ruling over those, don't think of God as a chess, chess master only just moving pawns and doesn't care about what the outcome is. We see that he is brokenhearted over the sin of his people, how he relates to the woman at the well, the prostitutes who are being stoned. The, um, there's compassion towards people who have kind of found themselves because of their own sin in places. He's so kind. He said, I've come to sick and save. That was lost. I've came and demonstrate my love for them. So he's not a God just orchestrating like a general without care. And think about when Jesus came to the Lazarus's death and funeral. When Jesus came, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He knew he was sovereign ruling over this. But he came in and he, what did he do? We learned that he wept and he entered in because he breaks over death and what. So even right now, we looked at last week that God is a God who's weeping over the places we find ourselves. But while simultaneously in the profound mystery of who he is, he is also ruling over it. And that's our hope. So we have two types of storms, those that are our fault and those that aren't our fault that come to us. Uh, But God is really, no, those are the two types of storms we encounter. 
Now, uh, secondly, so uh, ways that we respond when we're scared. So when these storms come, we really do, we really do. <laughs> we're overwhelmed by them. And you may think about whatever storm you find yourself in right now or just coming out of or ahead, what's big or small, is that we, we do have fear. You know that the most frequent command in the New Testament, 76 times Jesus said, to do not be afraid. And in the upper room, over and over, don't let your hearts be troubled. We have great fear. We're fragile. And storms make us scared. Look, these, these, uh, these are sailors, right? They're used to storms. But this particular hurricane or whatever it was was so massive that they were scared. This is a big storm. And everybody on the face of the earth faces things and storms that are not a part of their own doing and a part of just because of the sin and misery that we all live in. We face storms that just send us sideways, and they're, they're scary. And so there's a couple of ways we respond, and I want you to see that a couple of ways that we see that they respond here in, in verse 1. is One, you can be like Jonah, and sometimes people do that. I don't think either one of these is a better response, okay? But the first one you can do is spiral. You can just spiral down and just kind of give up. It's interesting when you read chapter 1 and then into chapter 2, how many of the idea of, of actually going, the, the down word is used, it says going down in verse 3. It says, uh, he went down to Joppa. I don't think this is any chance. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. So he paid a fare and went down into it, right? And then in verse 5, it tells us that Jonah had gone even deeper into the deepest part of the sea. And where does he go after that? Then he goes over down into the sea. And where does he go from that? Down into a, a well. He is spiraling, and he's asleep at one point. And many theologians think, I mean, that's just a, you ever just need to sleep to escape what you're spiraling? Sometimes we just spiral. When storms come, and we find ourselves in dark places, and sometimes we got there by our own doing, and sometimes we got there by things that weren't our fault, but nevertheless, we spiral. I'm thankful, Marty, you mentioned that Haven Care is helping those who have had abortions, which is a very common thing within our own church body. The darkness when people come to realize where that is. I can imagine spiraling. Thinking I've done something beyond the forgiveness of God. But then the other side is you can, there are two S's, how we respond when we're scared. We either spiral or, excuse me, we either spiral or we spiritually negotiate. All right? We spiritually negotiate with God. In verse 5 and 6, you can show us that. In verses 5 and 6, the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and laying down was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps, God, perhaps the God will give 
as a thought that we may not perish. So right in foxholes, when things are bad, lots of people become very religious. Now notice the sailors went to each of their own god. They were polytheists. They had multiple different types of gods. Probably under Roman rule, it would have been different gods of the sea and gods, things that were created that they worshipped chose to worship. But nevertheless, they've gone to try to figure out, talk to all theirs, like it's not working, the storm's here. Let's go talk to uh, Jonah. Let's see what his god can do. They're just trying them all out. And when they get to the end of it, they, in the end, before they, they try to go back and not, they like, God, we have to throw you overboard? They try not to do that. They're scared to do that. What if we might anger this God if we throw this guy overboard? We cast lots, but would it make his God angry? And so then what do they do? Oh, we'll do it. We've got to, but please don't, don't ruin us because we throw him overboard. Do you see what they do? They negotiate with God. They spiritually negotiate. Either you spiral or you and I, this is our prayer. This maybe summarize a sailor's prayer in this way. They're not Christians at this point. It looks like they become one. Most say he does. They become some at the end. But we negotiate, God, if you'll do this, then we'll do this. If you'll do this for me, God, then I'll do this. And we negotiate. We try to leverage. And we become very spiritual. Which, by the way, oftentimes if you have something that you're holding onto, if you pray the prayer, if you will do this for me, God, then I will do that. Whatever that if is behind the if is usually your idol. So when we're scared, we either spiral and we run away or we try to get control by our own needs and negotiate with God. Um, that's kind of the three categories of what we would say of uh, the three categories of people in the world. There are those who are running from God to be their own king. There are those who are morally living to try to rule over God in their own righteousness. There are religious people, irreligious people, religious, and then there's Christian, which are left with only the grace of God that are only who they are, not because they've earned it or leveraged or negotiated, but God has mercifully saved them by his grace. And so what we do when we're scared is that we either spiral or we spiritually negotiate. Now notice in verse 16, finally, they actually see the storm they ought to be fearing. You'll see this in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. This is the sailors. And they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So um, many think that this, this means they, that fear there is an awe of God, but also a fear. And basically, they realized that they were worried about the wrong storm, if you will. Does that make sense? I remember when I was a child, I was about six or seven. I sh it's hard to remember things. I had to be less than seven because I had not moved to North Alabama yet. But we were with some family, some friends, and I was about probably about six years old. A vivid, vivid memory. We were visiting some friends of my parents, some family friends, and they lived out more in the rural part of the community we were in. So uh, there, right, when you live out in the rural in the county, there's no dog rules or pet rules or leash laws, right? You can just let your dogs run free. Well, when I was a child, I was playing in their front yard, and a neighbor who was a good ways away but had free dogs, and I was down playing, and two dogs came running at us, and one was a giant German shepherd that was coming at me. And as a six-year-old, I'm scared. And there was a smaller dog yapping, 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 and the big dog was coming after me. So I take off running. I've gotten too close to their house. They're chasing me, and sure enough, they catch me. And guess what? I get bit 
huge, a huge chunk bitten, it was bitten on the back of my leg uh, and um, hurt terribly. It was blue. I don't remember if I had to go shots. I don't remember all that, but it hurt, and I was bitten. Very, very difficult. You know which dog bit me? The little one. As I talked, as, uh, as my friends talked to the owners, I said, like, yeah, he's kind of, a, he's kind of a, a, a nice dog. He's not really the problem. The problem is the little one, and the little one bit me. Now, here's the point. The point is I feared the wrong storm. We become convinced that the biggest issues in our life are the storms that we're facing on this earth in this time and space that will end in these 80 years. But the greatest storm that every person has to face is before a holy God and who he is and who we are in relation to him. And their fear grew greater. They're exceedingly fearful when they saw God and got their eyes off the other storms. I mean, when we're concerned about those other storms, Christians are saying that my goal is to have life here to be good. When God's saving of his people is to promise a life forever. Psalm 33 and 4, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The idea of being forgiven by this God and who he is, as loving as he is, nevertheless as holy as he is, is the thing we fear. So we respond scared by wanting either spiraling or wanting to get control of God when really we ought to pause and see him correctly for who he is. Lastly, then, the hope of sinking. If you read there in chapter 2, this is at the end of the 2, so what, what Jonah does is he, he winds up uh, in the belly of a well. When he goes overboard, he winds up in a well. And, and chapter 2 is his prayer while he's in the belly of the well. Right Now, I, I said I would address this did this really happen? Is this allegory? We don't think this is allegory. This is a historical reality. Jesus himself, the, the, the fact that a man could be in a well. If you can't believe that, then you can't believe that Jesus walked on water, he conquered death. There's all kinds of miracles we can't. Our, our faith is built upon the supernatural, that a transcendent God does come in and rule over uh, all creation and can perform miracles and do things. So we do believe this was a real well. All right? And the way Jesus looks at it, and even the way this literary work is written, it is a historical narrative. Right? You can process that. We can debate that if you want. But that's our belief. And so he, he's in the well, uh, in, the, in, the, in the belly of the well, and this is his prayer. And at the end of his prayer, this is the very end of it, verses 8 through 9, those who pay regards to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So look there at verse 9, that second half, the hope of sinking. You see that phrase there, salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you see that? You see where he says that as he gets to the end of his prayer, what he concludes is salvation belongs to the Lord. Some theologians believe, some that I read this week, think that that particular phrase is the central theme, number one theme of the whole Bible. This is the central verse of the whole Bible. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Let me say it again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the theme of the Bible. 
What does that say? Yahweh is ruling, I'm not. And my only hope is if he brings salvation to me and saves me. The only hope of anyone in their sinking is that the Lord would bring. So what Jonah, in that moment, look at in verse 8. In the moment when he's seeking, he sees this salvation belongs to the Lord. And, well, I don't have, you don't have this, but where did he look? In chapter 2, it tells us, in verse 4, it tells us that Jonah, when he's thinking, he's in the belly of the well, and you think, oh God, oh God. But in, in verse 4, chapter 2 tells us that he's, I was driven away from your sight, and I shall look again upon your temple. When my life was fainting away, verse 7, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. When he was in the belly of the well, when he looked for hope, you know where he looked? He looked to the temple. Why would he look to the temple? He thought he'd try to think of what God is like, but he looks to the temple. And when he's in the temple, he concludes grace. You want to know why? Because he understood that at the temple, in the Holy of Holies, there at the altar, was the Ten Commandments upon the altar. And that every day, every year, one person could only come in there and sprinkle blood upon the altar where the law says you're guilty. And the only way your life could be atoned for is if blood was poured out on your behalf. That was the only way grace could be found in the temple. It was this place in that temple where justice was served for his law, and yet at the same time, grace was found in a covering. He didn't understand the whole story like we do. It was Jesus. He just knew that he needed grace, and he was guilty. And he also knew that if that place at that altar, look at verse 8, those who pay regard in vain idols forsake the hope of their steadfast love. He's thinking about the Ninevites. He's like, even they, in their idolatry, in their murdering and being bad people, their only hope is the steadfast love of God. And mine is too. But I have the voice of thanksgiving. will sacrifice you for I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The hope in our sinking is the grace of God and all that the temple tells us. Because now what the law cries out to you and I is guilty. Now Jesus, the good and better altar, the good and better lamb, his blood cries out for eternity, for eternity forgiven and loved and purchased And so the hope of our sinking is that we realize that God is our only hope. Can I, in both scenarios here, it's so beautiful about this story, something happened to these sailors that wasn't their fault. It was sin in the world of someone else that was affecting them, which we all contribute to. And then you had a guy with his sin who's running and God's coming after him. Both scenarios in this story End well. Jonah is saved. Now, we learned last week, he's not going to respond great. He's not as sanctified as he should be. But in this moment, he grows deeper in his understanding of the grace of God. And the sailors come to faith. So the hope of God's people in our storms, whether they're our fault or whether it's just the sin and misery that we live in, in the end, it works out well for us. That is our hope, is our finish in that way. We finished up the study. Um, two of the men's groups did this week, our last two chapters of um, Gentle and Lowly. And I will say in our studies this week were two of the sweetest times, sweetest fellowships I've had around truth and the word in a long time with a group of men. And we have a couple of quotes that really stuck out to you from the book we've been reading. And one pertains to people 
What is their hope who have made a lot of mistakes? And what will heaven be like? And what is hope for those who have, there's a lot of things that have happened to us that aren't our faults. And I just want to read these to you. And may they pour over you. First, for those, for our sins and what we've done. I'll read this. This is the end for us. The point of heaven is to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Then we are safe. Because the one thing we fear will keep us out, our sin, can heighten the spectacle of God's grace and kindness. It means that our fallenness now is not an obstacle to enjoying heaven. It is the key ingredient, you see that, to enjoying heaven. Whatever mess we've made of our life that is part of our final glory and calm and radiance, that thing that we've done that sent this life and more wonderful, uh, sent our life into meltdown, that is where God is in Christ becomes more real than ever in this life and more wonderful to us in the next. And those of us who have been pretty squeaky clean will get there one day and realize more than ever how deeply sin and self-righteousness and pride and all kinds of willful subconscious rebellions were way down deep inside us and how all that sends God's grace and kindness soaring as well and we too will stand astonished at how great his heart is for us. Do you see what God does with sin? Heaven, the new city, and the new earth is better for God's people than the garden where there was no sin. Why is that? Why is the new heaven and the new earth better? Because of our sin. Boom! That's crazy to think about. Is that not crazy? Because God turns it upside down and says it's the very thing that makes you see the depth of who I am and you enjoy me all the more. That's your story. It's not a pass to sin because we know he hates it. But he's ruling over it. So for everything that's broken, he brings you in and you will worship him because of the things you've done all the more in heaven. But then what about the things that weren't our fault? And I read you this. Do you realize what is true of you in, who are in Christ? Those in union with him are promised that all the haunted brokenness that infects everything, every relationship, every conversation, every family, every email, every weakening to the consciousness in the morning, every job, every vacation, everything will one day be rewound and reversed. The more darkness and pain we experience in this life, the more resplendence, the more resplendence and relief in the next. As the character says in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, reflecting on the biblical teaching, that is what mortals misunderstand. They say some of the temporal sufferings, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn every agony into glory. storms, no matter what kind of storm. They'll be reversed. Without knowing it, Jonah was a picture of, picture of what Jesus, I mean, they, when he went overboard and the storm stops and they start worshiping and they were saved. I mean, it literally stops. And then when he gets the grace of God and he gets to the end of himself, he spit out because what? That's the sweetest place to be is to see God for who he is, and that is our destiny in Christ. Because someone did go down into the deep 
for three days and rose to calm our storms. So, let's pray. Father, would you help us to sing to that with, with a heart of, um, that would encourage us and would, would you let this truth begin to affect every storm? There's storms right now from work to family to corporate league pandemics to sickness to cancer. There's storms that are our own making because we, we're either self-righteous or we're running or there's all kinds of storms. But we look to you as the God who has secured our end. And I pray that you would teach us to find ourselves saying the phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's my hope. Our only hope is that salvation belongs to you. We need you, God, more than we know. And if you are willing to go so far to take us to places where that's all we have, then that shows how compassionate and loving you are. You do not let us settle for anything less other than having you. Thank you for that. Amen.